Section 25 of The Devolutionist and the Emancipatrix. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. The Devolutionist and the Emancipatrix by Homer Eon Flint. Part 2. Chapter 7. The Missing Factor. By the time the four once more got together in the doctor's study, each had had a chance to consider the Sanusian situation pretty thoroughly. All but Billy were convinced that the humans were deserving people, whose position was all the more regrettable because due, so far as could be seen, the insignificant little detail of the barbless sting. Were these people doomed forever to live their lives for the sake of insects? Were they always to remain primitive and uncultured in ignorance of the things that civilization is built upon, obeying the orders of creatures who were content to eat, reproduce, and die? For that is all that bees know. Perhaps it was for the best. Possibly Rolla and her friends were better off as they were. It might have been that a wise providence, seeing how woefully the human animal had missed its privileges on other worlds, had decided to make man secondary on Sanus. Was that the reason for it all? All but Billy scouted the idea. To them the affair was a ghastly perversion of what nature intended. Van Emmon stated the case in a manner which showed how strongly he felt about it. "'These folks will never get anywhere if the bees can help it,' he charged. "'We've got to lend a hand here and see that they get a chance.' Smith said that so far as he was concerned, the bees might all be consigned to hell. "'I'm not going to have anything to do with the agent I had any more,' he declared. "'I'm going to get in touch with that chap, Dulnop. "'What is he like, Doc?' Kinney told him. Then Van Emmon asked for details of the herdsman, Chorus. No more bees in my young life, either. From now on it's up to us. What do you think? Turning to his wife and carefully avoiding any use of her name. The architect knew well enough that the rest were wondering how she would decide. She answered with deliberation. I am going to stay in touch with Supreme. You are? incredulously from her husband. Yes, I've got a darn sight more sympathy for those bees than for the humans. The frayed cats, disgustedly. But listen, protested Van Emmon, we can't stand by and let those cold-blooded prisoners keep human beings, like ourselves, in rank slavery. Not much. Evidently he thought he needed to explain. A human is a human, no matter where we find him. Why, how can those poor devils show what they are good for if we don't give them a chance? That's the only way to develop people. Give them a chance to show what's in them. Let the best man win. Billy only closed her mouth tighter, and Smith decided to say, Billy, you don't need to stand by your guns just because the Sanusian working class happens to be insects. Besides, were three to one in favor of the humans. Oh, well, she condescended. If you put it that way, I'll agree not to interfere. Only don't expect me to help you any with your schemes. 
I'll just keep an eye on Supreme. That's all. Then we're agreed, the doctor put on his bracelets. Suppose we go into the trance state for about three minutes, long enough to learn what's going on today. Shortly, Billy again using the eyes and ears of the extraordinarily capable bee who ruled the rest, once more looked down on Sanus. She saw the big city, which she now knew to be a vast collection of hives, built by the humans at the command of the bees. At the moment, the air was thick with workers, returning with their loads of honey from the fields which humans had been compelled to cultivate. What a diabolical reversal of the accepted order of things! The architect had time to note something very typical of the case. On the outskirts of the city, two humans were at work, erecting a new hive. Having put it together, they proceeded to lift the big box and place it near those already inhabited. They set it down in what looked like a good location but almost immediately took it up again and shifted it a foot to one side. This was not satisfactory either. They moved it a few inches in another direction. All told, it took a full minute to place that simple affair where it was wanted, and all the while those two humans behaved as though someone were shouting directions to them, silent directions as it were. Billy knew that a half-dozen soldier-bees surrounding their two heads were coolly and unfeelingly driving them where they willed. And when the work was done, they left the spot. Two soldiers went along behind them to see they did not loiter. As for the doctor, he came upon Rolla when the woman was deep in an experiment. She stood in front of a rude trough, one of perhaps twenty located within a large high-walled enclosure. In the trough was a quantity of earth, through the surface of which some tiny green shoots were beginning to show. Rolla inspected the shoots, and then, with her stone knife, made a final notch in the wood on the edge of the trough. There were twenty-odd of these notches, whereas on other troughs which the doctor had a chance to see were over thirty in many cases, and still no shoots. The place, then, was an experimental station. This was proven by Rolla's next move. She went outside the yard and studied five heaps of soil, each of a different appearance, also three smaller piles of pulverized mineral, nitrates for all that the doctor knew. And before Kinney severed his connection with the Sanusian, she had begun the task of mixing up a fresh combination of these ingredients in a new trough. In the middle of this she heard a sound, and turning about, waved a hand excitedly toward a distant figure on the far side of a nearby field. Meanwhile, Smith had managed to get in touch with Dulnop. He found the young man engaged in work which did not, at first, become clear to the engineer. Then he saw that the chap was simply sorting over big piles of broken rock, selecting certain fragments which he placed in separate heaps. Not far away, two assistants were pounding these fragments to powder, using rude pestles, in great nature-made mortars, potholes, from some riverbed. It was this powder, beyond a doubt, that Rolla was using in her work. To Smith, Dulnop's task seemed like a ridiculously simple occupation for a nearly grown man, until he reflected that these aborigine were exactly like toddling children in intellects. Van Emmon, 
had no trouble in making connections with Chorus. The herdsman was in charge of a dozen cows, wild-looking creatures, which could have been far too much for the man had they been horned, which they were not. He handled them by sheer force, using the great club he always carried. Once, while Van Emmon was watching, a cow tried to break away from the group, but Chorus, with an agility amazing in so short a heavy a man, dashed after the creature, tapped her lightly on top of her head, Dazed and contrite, she followed him meekly back into the herd. The place was on the edge of a meadow, at the beginning of what looked like a grain field. Stopping here, Chorus threw a hand to his mouth and gave a ringing shout. Immediately it was answered, faintly, by another at a distance, and then Van Emmon made out the form of Rolla, among some huts on the other side of the grain. She beckoned toward the herdsman, and he took half a dozen steps toward her. Just as abruptly he stopped, almost in mid-stride. Simultaneously Van Eben heard a loud buzzing in either ear. Chorus was being warned. Like a flash he dropped his head and muttered, "'Very well, I will remember next time,' and trembling violently he turned back to his cows. "'Well,' remarked the geologist, when the four came out of their seance, "'the bees seem to have everything their own way. "'How can we help the humans best? "'Hurry up with your idea. "'I'm getting sick of these damned poisoners.' "'The doctor asked if others had any suggestions. "'Smith offered this. "'Why couldn't the humans retire to some cave "'or build tight-walled huts, and thus bar out the bees?' No sooner had he made the remark, however, than the engineer declared his own plan no good. These people aren't like us. They couldn't stand such imprisonment long enough to make their strike worthwhile. Is there any reason, suggested Billy indifferently, why they couldn't weave face nets from some kind of grass and protect themselves in that way? Smith saw the objection to that, too. They'd have to protect themselves all over as well. Every inch would have to be covered tightly. From what I've seen of them, I'd say the arrangement would drive them frantic. It would be worse than putting clothes on a cat. It's a man-sized job we've tackled, commented the doctor. What Smith says is true. Such people would never stand for any measures which would restrict their physical freedom. They are simply animals with human possibilities, nothing more. He paused and then added quietly, By the way, did either of you notice any mountains just now? Smith and Van Emmon both said they had. Why? Of course, it isn't likely, but did you see anything like a volcano anywhere? No, both replied. Another thing, Kinney went on, so far I've seen nothing that would indicate lightning, much less the thing itself. Did either of you, explicitly, run across such a thing as a blasted tree? They said they had not. Billy hesitated a little with her reply, then stated she had noted a tree or two in a state of disintegration, but none that showed the unmistakable scars due to being struck by lightning. Then we've got the key to the mystery, declared the doctor. Remember how brown and barren everything looks, excepting only where there's artificial vegetation? Well... Putting two and two together, I come to the conclusion 
that Sanus differs radically from the Earth in this respect. The humans have arrived rather late in the planet's history. Or, and this is more likely, Sanus is somewhat smaller than the Earth, and therefore has cooled off sooner. At any rate, the relationship between the age of the planet and the age of its human occupancy differs from what it is on Earth. I don't quite see, from Smith. What's that got to do with it? No. Well, go back to the first point, the dried-up appearance of things. That means their air and water are both less extensive than with us, and for that reason there are far fewer clouds. Therefore it is quite possible that there has been no lightning within the memory of the humans. How so? demanded the geologist. Why, simply because lightning depends upon clouds. Lightning is merely the etheric electricity, drawn to the earth whenever there is enough water in the air to promote conductivity. Yes, agreed Smith, but what of it? Kenny went on unheeding. As for volcanoes, probably the same explanation accounts for the lack of these also. You know how the earth, even, is rapidly coming to the end of her volcanic period. Time was when there were volcanoes almost everywhere on the earth. The same is likely true for Sanus as well. The point is, and the doctor paused significantly, there have been no volcanic eruptions and no lightning discharges within the memory of Sanusian man. What was he getting at? The others eyed him closely. Neither Van Emmon nor Smith could guess what he meant. But Billy, her intuition wide awake, gave a great jump in her chair. I know, she cried. A flood of light came to her face. The Sanusians! No wonder they let the bees put it over on them. They haven't got fire. They've never had it. End of Part 2, Chapter 7